Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter, Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So, as always, we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies, both featuring Gabriel Byrne, about an American woman who finds herself in the midst of a possession at the end of the millennium, and only one man can save her. It's Stigmata versus End of Days. Let the possession begin, Gabe. Excellent. Excellent. So, <laughs> I'm going to do a lot of Satan voice throughout this one, I think. <laughs> so, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. If I should say we actually had seen these movies before now. Yeah, you bet I did. <laughs> uh, we'll get to it then. Okay. So, on the 10th of September 1999, Stigmata was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. When a young woman becomes afflicted by stigmata, a priest is sent to investigate her case, which may have severe ramifications for his faith and for the Catholic Church itself. So, Gabe, had you seen stigmata for this podcast and was that at the cinema? And if so, walk me through your experience. Uh, Yeah, I saw this at the movies uh, and I saw it on VHS and on cable. Both of these movies I've seen a shit ton of times. I'm actually really surprised, Ben, did, were both of these first-time watches for you? Yeah, they were. So huh. something happened with twin movies in the late 90s, early 2000s, which we've discussed many times before. There was obviously this window of time where there were more twin movies than there have been in any other time. And I was watching more movies in general than any other time in my life. So this falls into the uh, the Benny era of free movies courtesy of working at the cinema and both these movies were free possibilities for me at the end of 1999, on the eve of the millennium. Oh, yeah. And I recall seeing both these posters before I was the cinephile I am now. And even then, Benny at the time thought, I could see a link. Those movies could be, one might say, twin movies. Uh-huh. Yet I wasn't keen to see them and I avoided them. So I actually only watched both these films for the pod. Well, we also failed, I suppose, to include, this could have been a, a, a what do you call it, a triplet movie because there's also that Janusz Kaminski film, Lost Souls, which I'm sure we can mention in trivia later. Ah, uh, with Winona Ryder. Yeah, yeah, which is also a similarly themed movie. And maybe Bless This Child, that Kim Basinger movie. But um, Look at you with your Satan movies, hey? Oh, man, I'm all over that shit. I love Satan movies. I dreamt of being the Antichrist as a child. (laughs) Well, surely Antichrist you'd also have loved only two years earlier, The Devil's Advocate. Oh, that's an all-timer. With Charlize, Keanu, Connie Nielsen, Al Pacino. Ah, so great. We've got to find a movie that's similar to that to talk about that. I fucking love that movie. When Satan Comes to Town. Oh, so good. So walk me through when you first saw Stigmata. I think I must have seen it at the at the cinema back in the day. To be honest, I remember seeing it a lot less than seeing End of Days. I actually found probably Stigmata a bit more forgettable at the time because its very 1999 aesthetic was not, um, uh, what do you call it when something is like memory-inducing now? Uh, Nostalgic. It was actually the 1999 aesthetic of seeing it in 1999. But, you know, watching it 20 years later, you're like, oh, this is the most 1999 aesthetic 
ever. So I probably didn't appreciate that at the time. So it's definitely one that grew in appreciation as the years went by. Um, end of day is probably the opposite. When I saw that at the time, it was the dawn of the millennium. So that felt prescient, but now it just feels dated. <laughs> like the whole thing is, you know, about the, what was that bug? The millennium bug. The Y2K bug. Yeah, you know. That's right. Imagine watching a movie about, oh, like, I think there was a Chris O'Donnell movie in development, you know, in 1997 about fearing the Y2K bug and, you know, it never happened. But yeah, I've, I've- The Y2 bug was like that window of time when people were making movies about that hot thing and there was the internet before that and that was the film The Net with Sandra Bullock. Then there was this idea of cell phones, man, cell phones. So there was that movie called Cell, I think, or Cellular with Chris Evans, right? Yeah, but that came out, that was like 2005. No, but the point being is that there's these times when what is just becomes part of our life, a thing, at the time is seen as so revolutionary and they make a whole movie about that thing. Yeah, but Ben, but Ben, let's pretend like we're not doing that now. They just announced a fucking Tiger King movie. Like whatever, like the as if they're not going to come out with a Jordan movie starring Michael B. Jordan or something in like six months. Like whatever the, the hot Netflix doco is, they're announcing that shit as a feature-length film, you know, three weeks later. Well, it's the same with drone films as well. Like all of a sudden there are lots of drone films when drones become popular. Um, maybe there'll be an electric car film soon as well. How exciting. Oh, awesome. So anyway, look, I, I saw both of these movies at the cinema and enjoyed them and have seen them since. And these were both first-time watches for you. So maybe I'll come at this with like a more nostalgic brush and you can come at it as someone who probably watched movies that felt dated. <laughs> I don't know. Well, End of Days opened up only about two months after Stigmata on the 24th of November 1999. Um, by the way, here's its synopsis from IMDb. At the end of the century, Satan visits New York in search of a bride. He's up to an ex-cop who now runs an elite security outfit to stop him. So, yeah, I, as I mentioned earlier, avoided this at the time and saw this for the first time on Video On Demand. So watching these two movies 20 years after the fact, and as you say, they do feel very of the time, was a very interesting experience. Let me save it actually for our review. So perhaps I should jump into a quick little uh, history lesson, a little shallow dive as to how we got here with these twin movies, and then we can jump into our review. Sounds good. Does that float your boat? Mate, it floats my boat. Excellent. So Stigmata and End of Days. It would appear from my internet sleuthing, and by that I mean Googling randomly, that these films came into Genesis without any connection to each other at all. Neither film is based on a pre-existing property. Stigmata, which came first, is written by Tom Lazarus and the greatest screenwriting name of all time, Rick Rampage. Nice. <laughs> he sounds like a wrestler. Do you think do you think he changed his name? Or do you think he was born like his parents were like, you know, Jonathan and Martha Rampage? <laughs> well, look, I've got to say, Rampage by itself is a very assertive last name. I guess Rick Rampage is a bit like Clark Kent, isn't it? It's going for that that rhyming uh, kind of, um, what's the best way to describe it? Oh, like superhero names, Peter Parker, you know. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, Woos Wayne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the classics. For, for example, for example. Um, so this film came about uh, as just, it appears, a spec script, Um one of those writers had been writing for a long time for several decades. The other hadn't. And it looks like uh, 
Rick came along and rewrote Tom after the fact. Uh, I think that's right. Um, Often is the case that you have a story credit for a writer who is the original creator of the story, and so they retain that story credit and a screenplay credit after that. So Rick's joined after the fact and gets a co-writing credit with Tom. In contrast, End of Days seems to... Not again, not have any backgrounds at all. It's by a writer named Andrew W. Marlowe, and he'd only had one credit before this, or two credits actually, two episodes of the TV series Viper. But then he wrote Air Force One, which was a huge smash for Harrison Ford. Basically, best described as Die Hard on a Plane with the President. Die Hard on Air Force One. Yeah, great concept, good movie. And then he had End of Days after that, and here's a sole writing credit on that. Um, one film leans heavily into the millennium phobia at the time, which is End of Days. Stigmata could have been made any time, really. doesn't seem to tap too much into these ideas about the end of the century. So having said all of that, these films both seem to have originated individually without any connection to each other. Uh, the casting of Gabriel Byrne, which we'll get to, is odd in that he features as both a villain and a hero. I mean, you can't get more extreme than uh, a priest versus Satan, if not God versus Satan. So let's jump into our review, starting with Stigmata. Gabe, did you like it? What worked for you? What didn't? I had a great time with this movie. I was actually really pleasantly surprised we watching it. Like, I, I have to say, I love, I love the aesthetic of this film. I mean, it's very, like we said, it's very of its time, but man, like that sort of Super high contrast, ultra grainy, long lens, um, flash cut like it's a, you know, 1990s metal music video. Fuck, inject that straight into my veins. It's great. Well, it's actually by a pretty prominent music video director of the time, Rupert Wainwright. Um, I agree. Like it very much looks like the visual aesthetic of music videos of the time. Uh, the director had done films, or I should say music videos, for MC Hammer, NWA, um, Michael Jackson even. So, you know, basically he was totally in that era of that Michael Bay kind of like long lens, high contrast look. And you're right, you can really see the grain of the film, can't you? Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough because I think really grainy films don't actually do all that well when they're um – run on streaming services, like you actually lose a lot of that grain. I think it's hard for compression to turn a very grainy picture into a picture that remains grainy but is also small enough to stream. Like you lose a lot of that or it can just artifact on screen. But, man, I love that look. Um, I even went looking for like American cinematographer magazines about, you know, how they shot this movie. Anyway, I couldn't find them, but I did make an effort to try and do a minimal amount of research, so credit there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you barely get any credit for that at all. I mean, <laughs> sure, you can try and milk it, but I'm not actually handing that out lightly. No, fair. Tell me, what did you think of the score, the soundtrack? It, you know, sometimes we talk about we don't do maybe enough side-by-side comparison. I thought the soundtrack for Stigmata is totally forgettable, which was weird because they have, like, Billy Corgan doing the music, but then two other credited composers. So I feel like maybe they hired Billy Corgan and then he delivered a few cues and they were like, ah, hey, maybe this is half-assed, we've got to get some other people in. Um, but, yeah, I didn't really 
I don't really remember the music. Did you really like the music in Stigmata? No, I didn't, but it was very of its time. I love Portishead and Massive Attack. And I think they both get a play. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the music cues are, uh, are pretty cool, I guess. Um, that sort of, yeah. Yeah, the needle drops are very of the time. And if you were to put Portishead and Massive Attack in a movie in 99, I think you were basically buying yourself some credibility because both those particular bands of trip-hop definitely had credibility and the cool factor. I don't think those needle drops worked in this film, but it definitely placed it for me in 1999. And I have fond memories of both those bands and that time. But, but like, even the, even the art direction and costumes are so late 90s. You know, like uh, Portia de Rossi in this, her look, or uh, Patricia Arquette's, you know, Patricia Arquette works as a hairdresser. I'm not saying hairdressers can't make a lot of money, but, you know, she has this kind of, like, sprawling warehouse apartment, but it also constantly leaks and is always lit by, like, hundreds of candles. <laughs> it's awesome. It's hilarious. It's basically the problem people have with Friends, the TV series, that these people who are waiters, waitresses, live in these sprawling apartments. Same here with Patricia Arquette. Like, it is so over-designed. Like, she has this giant uh, freestanding bath that is constantly surrounded by about 50 half-melted melted enormous candles with doves, lots of doves. Oh, I love it. Now, can you imagine living in a, new, a Pittsburgh apartment? What would the reality would probably be, the reality in a place that's potentially that dilapidated would be Pigeons shitting everywhere and maybe rats eating the pigeons. Here we have doves. Wait, is this set? Lots and lots of doves. It's set in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I thought it was actually New York, but it's actually set in Pittsburgh. Oh, I thought it was New York. I know, I know. What? Yeah, it's- Ah, that's so low rent. (laughs) It's actually set in Pittsburgh and potentially filmed in Pittsburgh, but it definitely does feel like New York, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I I totally assumed it was New York the whole movie. I must have missed some line of dialogue or don't know enough about- I just assume any movie is set either in New York or Los Angeles, I guess. But but they never do a scene, or you never see in these movies, the sequence before someone gets into a bath with 100 candles as they laboriously set up and light all of their candles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, like, you know, for example, they burn their finger, the wind's blowing. Oh, yeah. They turn the candle upside down. They drip some wax in their finger. They burn their finger, et cetera, et cetera. That's so true. Um, still, still, this definitely speaks to I like... Like, when I was watching this, I, like, went, ha, 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 look at her sort of unrealistic apartment. Then I was like, you know what? Fuck that shit. I will take over-designed and cool than, like, low-key and real. I mean, this isn't a, a, you know, this isn't a bloody late 90s James Gray movie, you know, where it's about, you know, verisimilitude and sad sack, Brighton Beach, you know, my mother's had a stroke and my brother's a hitman. It's like, lean into it. Just make it cool, you know? Yeah, I actually agree. And maybe it's the casting of the Arquette, but it had a visual contrast, a colour palette that reminded me of True Romance, actually. In fact, Portia de Rossi actually looks totally like Patricia Arquette from True Romance. like As opposed to Patricia Arquette looking like Patricia Arquette from well, True Romance? That's the irony, right? <laughs> oh, okay, I get it. I do understand irony. But I agree. Like I was reading about the making of The Matrix the other day and I was flicking through Bound, the debut of the Wachowskis, and that film- ha, Flicking through. <laughs> <laughs> just, 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 just looking for a couple of scenes, you know? <laughs> no scenes in particular. <laughs> but that film, for example- has a lot of white apartments and so on, and they do a great job of actually using high contrast lighting in that neo noir style to try and create aesthetic. But 
I kind of think if you can use strong lighting and colour as well, it's best of both worlds. And that's why I actually really enjoyed the visuals of True Romance. And I agree with you. Like, I love when the people, they actually use, you know, crazy wallpaper or something like that, which is so unlikely to be the wallpaper choice you'd see in that house. But it just breaks up the monotony of seeing white apartment after white apartment after white apartment. So I agree. Like, go for it. And the film didn't feel too dislocated from reality, even though you knew that it was unrealistic for a hairdresser to afford a place that big and her place wouldn't look as dynamic as that. That's fine. You just sort of go with it. You kind of accept that she's a hairdresser, so she may, you know, use lots of flair and colour in the same way that she colours people's hair. It works. It works. Um, but let's talk about the actual premise, what keeps these film films in common with each other. So I am from a Catholic background originally. I'm an atheist now, but I was a Catholic when I was a kid. And I was always fixated with the idea of stigmata, about someone who would be uh, chosen um, for better or worse and suffer stigmata in real life. Um, I think it's a great idea for a movie. And the only thing that surprised me is that there weren't more movies made based on this premise beforehand. Can you think of anything in Hollywood history before this film that used that as a premise? You mean total possession and stig and having the stigmata? Yeah, like The Exorcist, for example, is one of the classic possession movies, and she doesn't suffer stigmatism. Stigmatism. <laughs> she just is that what it's called? No, no. I was going to say, well, that's actually she'd require glasses because she can't see properly. Uh, but she doesn't suffer from stigmata, does she? No, I don't think so. I mean, she suffers from all kinds of horrible shit, but off the top of my head, you know, her head turns around. Yeah. <laughs> but don't you agree that it does feel like it's a missed opportunity in Hollywood history before 1999? Like, I'm surprised that hadn't been a film, and maybe because it's just too sensitive as an idea. But having said that, I mean, if you had a film like The Exorcist that actually had as much mainstream appeal as it did... I wouldn't have thought it's too much of a stretch to then do a film about someone suffering from stigmata. And I don't know, I, I feel the execution of that concept in this film was the right balance between being a little bit of horror, um, but mainstream music, mainstream sensibilities in some ways. To me, it felt like a good execution of this idea. Who's the person that would least like to be chosen, unquote, to suffer from stigmata? someone who's not a believer, and so it's sort of thrust upon them and they just feel cursed. To me, that's a really good execution of this concept. Yeah, totally. So you're saying you quite enjoyed this uh, film? Well, when I say that, I think it's a good execution of the premise, and I'm surprised the premise hadn't been executed before. Look, it was okay. I guess to get to my review of this film, I liked a lot of elements about it, I thought the ticking clock idea was quite clever from a screenwriting perspective. The idea that she progressively is suffering the different stages that Jesus allegedly experienced in the Stations of the Cross, in which each wound that she gets is like the next stage as to when he was crucified. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the final one was meant to be when she's speared uh metaphorically, in the side of her abdomen, which what they did to Jesus to test whether he was alive. That was like the final kind of act of violence against him. Um, 
it's kind of cool because basically once she finds out what's coming up, she's just dreading the impending pain she's about to suffer. Uh, and So wait, the final one was poking Jesus with a pointy stick. Well, the movie got something wrong there. That's a bit of a mistake by the movie. Oh. Gabriel Byrne as the priest, Daniel, describes the jab with the spear as being the final, most painful, violent act that was thrust upon Jesus Christ after he was crucified. But in reality, the spear was done to basically test whether he was alive, like to see whether he'd react. I really like how they uh, do a whole scene about actually um, Jesus wasn't um, hammered through the hands, he was hammered through the wrists, and every crucifix is actually wrong. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually learned that at school uh, where science was applied to religion at my Catholic school, and that was actually a big deal because you found out then the mechanics as to how someone was crucified at the time, but you also learned that they actually died of, of, of asphyxiation because in hanging, eventually, once you couldn't hold yourself up anymore, you would basically just die of lack of breath. Totally, totally. But wait until wait until they hear that maybe Jesus wasn't blonde and blue-eyed. <laughs> That'll blow their mind. Oh, shit. But, for example, don't you think that's a pretty clever t- ticking tock? Once you can actually say, look, I forecast these various stations of the cross will occur to you, it's a pretty horrific idea for her to have to accept and then just brace herself for what's coming. And the scene where she is uh, virtually whipped in the train carriage, it's pretty violent and really distressing. Like she's being uh, flagellated uh, with a whip by some sort of ghost or being of some sort. Um, But this is actually a question I have for you about the film that I didn't get. She's been chosen or as a vessel, right? Mm-hmm. And she's been chosen ostensibly as the vessel of the recent priest that we saw, spoiler, who died at the start of the film, who was one of the trio. And this trio consisted of your mate, the Eastern European actor called Raid Someone. What's his name? Uh, Rada. Rada. Rada Serbija. I, I, I really want to get his pronunciation right because I feel I'm going to give him about nine awards later. Yeah, I agree. I love him as well. <laughs> so he plays a priest called Marion. And the second priest is Jonathan Price playing Cardinal Daniel Hausman, weird name. And the third priest is the one who we see dead at the start of the film. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he's channeling through Patricia Arquette what the three of them discovered, which is the missing Gospel of Thomas, which is apparently a version of the New Testament what Jesus did, which would basically break everything down because it would be in conflict with the New Testament that the Catholic Church relies on. Is that right? Yeah, so she's yeah, so she's being possessed not by Satan or by a devil, but by a well-meaning, if um, maybe confused in his old age priest. Who's died. Who's dead. And he's the guy we see at the start of the film who Gabriel Byrne sees at a funeral and a statue is bleeding through the eyes like tears. Totally, totally. And just side point, I love movies where people investigate like fake religious uh, happenings, you know, and they're like- Well, I think it's it's such a great character, right? To have a guy, Gabriel Byrne, whose character is both a priest and a scientist, to me that's a really interesting character in that he's automatically 
in conflict in some ways with both beliefs. And also sexy. <laughs> Which which just which just triples the problem, you know. And as the movie goes on, he sort of he becomes more and more sexy. Like he like he stops wearing his collar and stuff, you know. And then he talks about like maybe when he was younger, he used to bang. Um, and it's like, ooh, oh, what's going to happen here? Is he going to quit his vows? Is he going to be? Is he going to drop being a? Is he going to lose his priestly? Uh, what do you call it? Or like uh, priestly. What do you call that? Priestly his vows choices. His vows. His vows. Drop the vows. Lose the man of science and just become a man of carnal pleasure. <laughs> as he as he bangs a mentally ill woman. <laughs> anyway, I was waiting for it, and I wish it happened. <laughs> I I did think at one stage when she was seducing him or yearning for him. I was wondering whose yearn it was. Was it hers or the other priest? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, man. Oh, never really thought it. That's a good point because she does it while she's clearly in a, like, fugu state or whatever. Exactly. Fucking hell. Oh, man, that's weird. I would have thought that uh, priest would have sent her out maybe to try and fuck a child. <laughs> As always, the comments of Gabe aren't endorsed by this podcast. <laughs> uh, like what, 10% of all of Catholicism aren't pederasts? <laughs> How can we possibly get through an entire podcast mentioning the Catholic Church and priests and you don't mention that? I should have seen it coming. Well, I feel like we're, we're legally obligated, you know, at least one of these characters, and maybe it was Jonathan Price because he's the villain, was probably, you know, culpable in some sort of, at least a cover-up. So circling back to Jonathan Price and the dead priest that she's channeling, what I don't understand about the concept, which perhaps to me means it's not the best execution of the concept of stigmata, why is that well-intentioned but particularly mean dead priest using stigmata to get this message out? Is that required? Like that doesn't make sense to me. Like, if he's there to try and have her as a vessel to tell the truth, why do the acts of um, a crown of thorns on her head like Jesus Christ or uh, the gashes in her wrists, why are they relevant? It does. It seems to me to be a vehicle to have her traumatised progressively throughout the film, but there's no real connection between the motivation of the ghost. Well, her mum buys <coughs> in the opening sequence the old priest's crucifix or rosary or whatever that has been stolen off of his body and she sends it to her daughter. So I guess he travelled from Brazil or whatever to America in a rosary and then then entered her. And why does he actually need to traumatise her physically with stigmata rather than just have her be a, a voice? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think they explain it as that he also had suffered stigmata. So I guess it's just... Oh, so his affliction was essentially passed on to her. Okay. Yeah, it's like venereal disease. Wow. Awesome comparison. <laughs> um, any other final kind of comments in our review of this film, like things that really worked for you in terms of being the best execution of this idea or anything that just didn't work at all in terms of performance or script, plot holes, etc. No, I mean, like I said, I love the photography and editing. I guess this is a movie that the aesthetics, I like the aesthetics more than I like maybe the plot itself. 
Like the Blair Witch Project 2 Book of Shadows or something like that, you know. <laughs> um, I've got to say, the minute you set up someone like a priest who's also a scientist, to me that's just a really smart way out of the gate to set up the tension of a character and then basically have his faith tested. The interesting thing about the film is that his faith isn't actually tested by him discovering that his belief in God is not true. It's actually the opposite of that. He, if anything, his faith is compounded. He does see that she is uh, possessed by a priest and is experiencing spirituality in some way. What tests his faith is actually the institution of the church opposed to a spiritual belief. Mm. That's a cool idea, I think, because there are a lot of people out there, including uh, people in my old world as a schoolboy and my parents and so on, who might actually believe in something but not actually believe in the dogma associated with it. So they don't believe in the church itself, but they believe in a God or God. And that's a cool idea, which I think the film does a good job of exploring because at the end you sort of feel that he basically has lost faith in the institution or that particular leader played by Jonathan Price, uh, but his faith is as strong as ever. And it seems to be that he can reconcile both science and Catholicism sitting side by side. Fair enough? Mm. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting because you maybe think it, it almost plays against that archetype from the get-go in that you think maybe he's going to solve um, what is causing the statue to cry blood at the beginning and it'll turn out to be just like an open ventilation mixing with some sort of sewer grate compounded by some sort of like heat something or other. But it turns out, nope, he's like, this is the real shit. This is the real shit. As opposed to, I feel like I've seen the other version of that a whole bunch of times, you know. Um, I don't know. That movie with, I was going to say Hilary Duff, Hilary Swank, where she's like, is it called The Reaping or something? Oh, you know, I've where never she's seen like a paranormal, a paranormal investigator or something. Yeah, um, right. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It sort of played against that expectation. And I love, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm not really religious at all, but I guess I love Christian mythology in movies or iconography. And yeah, I like that this messed with that a little bit in a cool way. The other cool thing this film did is that it took an event uh, and actually kind of tried to reconceptualize history. So in this case, in 1945, I think it was, that's when the alleged uh, Gospel of Thomas was found, which is apparently in conflict with the Catholic Church's interpretation of the New Testament. And I love it when films take something like that and just add a conspiracy theory to it. Another classic example is, is it the Shroud of Turin, which is meant to be uh, the an impression of Jesus' face when he was wiped uh, with a uh, piece of material and his sweat and blood created like an image on the material and that's allegedly the only actual portrait of Jesus. Another example is there's like a hill somewhere in... Is it Egypt? I can't recall. And basically that hill, if you look at it, <laughs> if you squint your eyes and turn your head to the side, resembles an ark. Ah. And allegedly it's essentially the shape of the ark, the original ark. I love that kind of conspiracy stuff. And totally. the way you can basically spin a whole film or an idea off that. And in this case, to me, to mix stigmata with this finding of, the other interpretation of Jesus' story, which has been 
allegedly suppressed by the Catholic Church, it's doubling down. It's doubling down on mythology and controversy and um, conspiracy. So to me, it's done quite well to try and weave those two disparate ideas together. Uh, any final thoughts before we move on to Ani in End of Days? No, let's talk... Let's talk about end of days. I feel I feel you have some thoughts about end of days, and I would like to explore those. Shall I go first? <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go. Okay, I had to watch this film in four different sittings. It was terrible. Um, I avoided this film at the time, I think, because I thought it was too. It was leaning too heavily into those, you know, Y two K bug fears, millennium fears, and this isn't a this isn't days before Facebook, and you know. 2chan or 4chan and QAnon and all those various conspiracy theorists out there. But there was a sense that this was trying to sort of tap into the idea of literally the end of days at the end of 2000. And I don't know, that wasn't my cup of tea and re-watching it now even more so. Um, I just found this film boring, which is a funny film, or sorry, it's a funny thing to say about a film that cost this much money, has this many explosions has Arnold Schwarzenegger, and has the stakes of the end of the world. I was just bored. And so many things about this film are just odd to me. Um, so Jericho Kane is the character played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Awesome name. Yeah, okay. I could see it coming a mile off. He's going to be like a Jesus-like figure and save the day. Um, this film, I've got to say, firstly, this isn't a criticism but more of a surprise it's very odd in a mainstream film with this budget, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I'd say in most films is quite chaste. The premise of this film is that this baby, taken at birth, has been raised by, what, a couple of Saturnists um, and has been prepared as a young adult. Satanists. What did I say? Satanists. Oh, Satanists. <laughs> Mate, Satanists. 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 Satan. Um, and has been prepared from birth to be the plaything or the sexual partner of Satan on this particular night for one hour, just one hour, between 11.50 and midnight. And basically Arnold Schwarzenegger is trying to save her from having sex with him and she has admitted that she kind of in her dreams desires it but doesn't want to actually do it which makes me uncomfortable in terms of all that consent issue. And then there's a scene at the end of the film, spoilers. It's not illegal in a dream. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end of the film, when essentially Arnie is possessed by Satan, jumping from Gabriel Byrne's body to Arnie's body, you see him preparing to, I guess, implicitly rape her in the church on the... uh, what do you call the tabernacle? What do you call the desk in church? Is that what it's called, a tabernacle? I don't know. Oh, that's awesome. That's a good word. Anyway, it's a, it's very weird for a mainstream film and it didn't really bug me. It just felt a bit off and a bit odd. Um, yeah, but but I guess, you know, Rosemary's Baby, a incredibly famous movie about the impregnating of the Antichrist, sort of has all of that business in it. But... I mean, just going back a touch, the idea for me, like if someone said to me, hey, would you watch a movie where a, a baby is taken at birth by Miriam Margolis and Udo Kier and baptised in the blood 
of Satan or something to grow up to uh, be the mother of the Antichrist, but can only be stopped if Schwarzenegger cock blocks Gabriel Byrne. I mean, like, fucking sign me up. <laughs> I think the addition of the, of the phrase cock block. <laughs> well, maybe that's what's missing from their IMDb. I'm going to go and I'm going to go edit the IMDb plot summary to make it sound way cooler. Um, it's interesting you found it boring because I guess for me, there's a whole bunch of kind of like scenes where like, I don't know how do you like, Maybe the plot mechanics are kind of boring, the way they find the guy, he's got no tongue, Schwarzenegger's like some sad sack loser, wants to kill himself, whatever. You know, like, but, but like, like the ridiculous milkshake he makes for himself in the morning, you know, when he gets interrupted. Oh, that part where they establish his character is just silly. Uh, Describe that scene because it's just ludicrous. It's meant to basically establish his character through a milkshake. Okay, so, so it's like someone saw Lethal Weapon and said, oh, how do you sell a guy who's suicidal? because of his dead wife and kids. Oh, you open up on him with a gun to his head. Great. Let's do that. But then let's have him also get, I, I guess Kevin Pollock's character turns up and hands him a coffee, but that's not good enough for Schwarzenegger. He pours the coffee that he's just been given into a blender, adds like uh, half a drunk beer, uh, two slices of pizza, something else. Like I remember, oh, Pepto-Bismol or whatever. What's that pink shit that they drink, you know? Yeah. Blends it up and then takes a swig. And like you say, it's just to set up just like how rock bottom this guy is. It's a, it's great. Food is just basically a functional form of calories and not even that because he uses old pizza, as you say, and uh, he just basically is fueling his body to get through a day which he doesn't really want to be alive for. Totally. Um, but It just feels so on the nose. But they... It's kind of stupid because, you know, they're like this high-line security business, you know, who does like personal security for, I don't know, ostensibly super rich people because the sort of way they have, the, you know, the, the, the car formations and the limo that pulls up when the guy tries to shoot at Gabriel Byrne. But if you're paying top dollar, why do you want some fucking rummy who spent all night you know, at least a movie like Man on Fire acknowledges that when you pay for Creasy in that, you're getting sort of damaged goods. And he says, like, you know, I'm 75%, like, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm better than nothing. This is like, if I was Gabriel Byrne, I would be not happy. I, I, would, be, I would be looking for a refund. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And even Kevin Pollock, like, that's the... I don't believe Kevin Pollock's character was ever... Like, why is he working personal security? It's not like he was ever some Delta Force... <laughs> fucking guy, you know, like what's his magical skill? At least in Man on Fire, even though he is an alcoholic and he has demons, he dresses smartly and so he he presents as someone who is at least, he at least looks professional. Kevin Pollock and Arnie have both gone to the same $50 leather jacket store <laughs> in some back alley. Oh, no, dude, Schwarzenegger's outfit in this is great. Doesn't he wear like a like three-quarter length? But look, anyway, also though, things like, I mean, Gabriel Byrne as the devil is, like, super-inspired casting. But, you know, that mother-daughter three-way that um, he has where, like, he, the, the mum and the daughter sort of meld into one person? I mean, that was pretty cool. Fuck, he punches a hole in Yudo Kia's head. That's cool. Oh, that's, Schwarz- that's pretty uh, – that's crazy. That's actually particularly violent for an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Totally. I mean, he's not demon knight good, but, you know, it'll do. I mean, Arnie has a fight scene with Miriam Margolis. And that's good as well. By the way, that's a bit ludicrous because she isn't possessed by anyone. No. Right? She's just an older lady, the sort of person you saw in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and the Harry Potter films. 
She's a regular lady. She's not possessed. Until this point, we haven't been told she has any special skills in karate or anything like that. He's not injured, yet she's throwing him all over the room. <laughs> Basically, I think she's fueled by just anger and determination. Is that right? I Yeah, I guess so, you know, but- It's a bit silly. That's, it's a bit great. Um, okay, here are the issues I have with this film. Okay, yeah, yeah fair. Um, it doesn't make sense. Here's why. Okay. So Satan takes the form of Gabriel Byrne. We don't really know why. Satan arrives and moves through the streets as this kind of clear ghost and then makes a beeline straight for the men's washroom where Gabriel Burns just finished doing a piss and was washing his hands. So it seems to be these chosen Gabriel Byrne like a shark chooses a victim from a long way away and zeroes in on him past all the people. We're not sure why. Uh, There's no sense that Gabriel Byrne has a job or- Sexiness. A connection. <laughs> Richness. I asked I asked my missus, I said, what do you think of late 90s Gabriel Byrne? She was like, he's very sexy. So we can only assume that it's because of his wealth, but also, you know. Well, I agree. It's inspired casting. Um, I did want to say actually one point, though. Actually, we'll circle back to the, these plot issues. Excuse the pun, but Gabriel Byrne must have been dealing with some serious demons in 1999 to star in both these movies. Why did he, he or his agent go, you know what? Let's double down. Let's go, let's play both corners of the room. Satan in one movie and a priest in the other. Like, why? Is that a case where he's just trying to artistically challenge himself as, a, as an actor and he thinks, you know what, let's go for the extremes? I mean, I guess. Well, he's an, he's an Irish actor. Maybe he was like devoutly religious and realised after he did one or the other, oh, shit, i got to... I don't know. Maybe he's a real, real Catholic. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. But he's from Dublin, like a Catholic Irish actor. He's gonna like self-flagellate himself, like he's you know that big fat white guy in the name of the rose, by punishing himself with a whip, and basically by choosing the other role, he's negating. Yeah, clever. There you go. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I like that. Mystery solved. Okay. Mystery solved. Okay. But anyway, he takes the form of Gabriel Byrne, and to me, the biggest problem I have with this movie is that it's Satan inside Gabriel Byrne's body. And they're chasing, or he's chasing Arnie, and I can't even remember the name of Tunny, the character. What's her name? Anyway. Christine. Christine, right, through the city. Christ New York, yeah. So it seems to be that in taking the form of Gabriel Byrne, he can walk amongst other humans and influence other humans in the same way, for example, he uh, possesses or influences uh, C.H. Pounder. She's that uh, black American actress who's awesome from The Shield. Cece? Sorry? Cece? DC? No, is her name, isn't her name Cece? Oh, Cece, is it? What are you just saying, Cece H? I thought it was, was C-H pounder. C, well, it's Cece H. Oh. How do you? So many initials. It's very confusing. Okay, so it's C. Well, I don't know if there are initials or. No, you're right. You're right. Cece H pounder. No, it is because her name is Carol Christine Hilaria. Right. Okay. Okay. So podcast listeners might recognise her from like 189 episodes of NCIS New Orleans or 89 episodes-ish of The Shield. She's awesome. She's great. She's really good. She's really good. So she plays Jericho, Arnold Schwarzenegger's boss in this movie, and Gabriel Byrne possesses her or influences her to essentially betray Jericho. And then when she's killed by Jericho in self-defence, he rises her to life again and she continues on her way. So- 
he can make people come alive. He can uh, kill them easily, obviously, and he can walk through the streets. But I don't understand, is he actually tracking down Christine, Robin Tunney, and Jericho Arnold Schwarzenegger like a regular person, just like like tips from people on the street? Like he's Satan, right? Wouldn't he be more on the president and able just to basically raise himself above New York City and just see her? It seems like a very inefficient way after waiting 2,000 years to find your fuck buddy uh, with a narrow period of time to consummate the relationship in 10 minutes before midnight. Yeah, but they actually end up in the church with 10 minutes before midnight. So maybe Gabriel Byrne as Satan was just fucking around with them. He had time to kill. Oh, so, you know? so it's basically the thrill of the chase. He's enjoying just sort of like yeah. the flirtation of I mean, chasing them and killing people on the way because being Satan, his foreplay is violent. It's evil. Yeah, I guess so. What else is he going to do for the day and a half or whatever the movie is set before the last 10 minutes? I mean, you make a good point. Like why doesn't he also just fly around as the stupid-ass demon he becomes at the end? And I'll tell you the answer to that. Because at the end, when Satan turns into a big CGI demon, that's shit. But Gabriel Byrne walking around doing cool stuff, that's good. Okay, so let's get back then to, you know, the premise behind the podcast, which did a better version of, you know, possession at the end of the millennium. To me, all the flaws we're discussing right now just point to the fact that this isn't the best execution of this idea. Like, you're right. Having Gabriel Byrne, when he's Satan, uh, is awesome because Gabriel Byrne is sexy bird. Uh He's just a great actor and the best thing about this movie. He's the best thing about both movies. But when he becomes that, you know, CG demon thing at the end, there's nothing interesting about that. If the whole film had been about that, it'd just be like watching that troll scene from Lord of the Rings for like two hours. Nothing engaging. I would have preferred for him to be contained in human form and that's like one of his weaknesses, right? So... He can jump from human form to human form. So if he's like burnt alive, he can jump from Gabriel Byrne's body. But the way you manufacture the plot is that you always keep him in Gabriel Byrne's body. That to me would actually like make the stakes a little bit more grounded. And then But that's that's uh that's Fallen, which came out a year before. Well, what was going on in the the guilt or the consciousness of screenwriters in Hollywood at that time? Like Well well in 1999. The Ninth Gate, that uh, Roman Polanski, Johnny Depp, Satan Possession movie also came out. So fucking hell, it was just a, they were just churning them out. You can't help but think, though, that being the end of the millennium, that was just one of those underlying fears or phobias and uncertainties that people had, right? Like there was just something about we're hitting 2,000 years, our calendar's based on after death of Jesus Christ, and us people start thinking about, what's the natural consequence of hitting this big birthday? Like, is it going to be something terrible? Like, it's, you know, Satan's payback. Like, what is the consequence of this? But it's weird. Like, that's we've just mentioned about eight, nine movies involving possession, the devil, etc. in that tiny window of about three years. Yeah, it was it was boom time. There was gold in them hills. Well, you- By the way, I'd, I'd definitely watch a movie called Satan's Payback. <laughs> um, tell me, what did or didn't work for you before we move on to the awards about this film? Like what did you like about it? Besides Gabriel Byrne being sexy Satan, anything else particularly work or any big glaring plot holes? Well, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something that I do like a lot about End of Days. Can you tell me something for nothing? Okay. What uh, I'll tell you 
Wait, is that the saying? I think so, yeah. Not n- not for nothing, <laughs> you mean? Not for nothing, but this is what I liked about uh, <laughs> Okay, two things. The f- the score, the music for this movie has fucking haunted my dreams for years, right? The opening theme music, right? It's like this sort of chant thing that goes <clears throat> do, 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 Right? Um, That's the first few bars of Jurassic Park. No, fuck no. This is what it actually sounds like. My singing's not good. It sounds exactly like this. Okay, so that's what the, the score for End of Days is. And I swear, f- for years, I was like, I'd heard this music somewhere in my childhood or something. And then I went back trying to find, I was like, must have been in a video game or something. And I was, there was like a PlayStation, I guess PlayStation 2 game called Time Splitters, where the music score sounded exactly the same, which was like this. And then I was like, uh, what was that terrible Jim Carrey movie Joel Schumacher directed called Number 23? It was like that for me. I was like, I was like fingling in that. That's the character's name, not just like some weird shit I was doing. <laughs> and I was like, there's got to be more to this. So, so then it turned out that Frozen 2 also has the same piece of score, which is this. <laughs> And what the fuck? Is this like some sort of um, old-timey Gregorian classic? Or have I exposed some sort of deep uh, Hollywood conspiracy that these soundtrack composers are just banging in samples and that's how they do it? You tell me, Ben. So I guess the big question is, is it the same composer for all three tracks? No. Ooh. No. No, and it might it might well be, and someone could just tell me that it's just based on some sort of old timey, you know, um, religious classic. But god damn it, for years I was looking for that. Um, I was always walking around humming, going, "Where did it come from? Where did it come from?" I was scrawling it on walls, you know. Anyway, what do you think of that? Well, what do you think of that investigative journalism? Okay, many things impress me right here. <laughs> for podcast listeners. Look, it is fair to say Gabe doesn't do a lot of the heavy lifting in preparation for these podcasts. I rely on uh, knowledge that I've collected over years and years of watching movies, Ben. And, like, if I can, just for a moment, when, when Picasso would scroll off a picture for someone and hand it to them in two seconds, they said, what, you did this in two seconds? He said, no, it took a lifetime to get to that point. Yeah, okay, so that's what the locksmith says as well when I pay a locksmith, like, you know, $1,000 for 20 minutes of work and they say... What you're paying for is 20 years of expertise. Okay. Fucking A. Sure, I get it. Yeah. Okay. That's right. But there's still the heavy lifting required to like, (laughs) you know, find the links and write the questions and have a script and rename the files and so on. So Rename the files. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Oh, man, I didn't realise you were uh, renaming the files. God. (laughs) Like, oh, Ben in the coal mines over here. 
Got back from a big day of renaming the files. When I was a boy, I like renamed files for five hours. <laughs> I feel like John Voight in Zoolander here. Like, I have no... So get out of here, you fucking merman. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So... But yes, but what Ben says is true. I will cop to that. I will cop to that. And so now you've turned up today. You've turned up with your game face on. Oh, man. I brought it. Right? You've, you've turned up with like some hardcore deep conspiracy theories about some sort of underground cult of religious-associated composers who are sharing stems with each other of iconic scores and perhaps not giving credit to each other or they're just picking over the dead carps or corpse, carps, the dead corpse of some old-timey tune, as you say, that might actually be a classic from the 18th century Beyond copyright, of course, and then repurposing it for something as horrific as End of Days through to something as family-friendly and recent as Frozen 2. That's right. Sir, I applaud you. But Ben. I applaud you. But Ben, my research goes even deeper. Oh, stop, stop. I did another, a whole other topic. A whole Hold other, me get, back. I'm. Woo. It's all too much. It's like. Get this. I, I feel like, I feel like uh, Christine. End of days. Ah. My reality is broken. You're about. Gabe is doing. There are so many deep cuts. There's so much research, so much work. Sal. It's not the guy I recognize. The question I ask Have you been possessed by Mate. John Williams or something like that? No, I've been. No. Hey, anyway, look, here's the thing. In End of Days, uh, I think Rod Steiger's character says Satan's greatest trick was convincing man he didn't exist. And I was like, what? This movie came out like three years after The Usual Suspects, which very memorably has the line, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't uh, exist. You do remember that line from The Usual Suspects? As soon as I heard of the film, I thought, wow, pretty ballsy to use the same line only three years after or four years after The Usual Suspects, particularly when you're doubling down and having totally. two of the same cast members, Gabriel Byrne and Kevin Pollock. Totally, totally. And also, in 2001, Steven Seagal movie Exit Wounds, uh, Michael J. White also says the line uh, when, it, when he's revealed, spoiler for 2001's Exit Wounds, fucking awesome movie, go check it out, that he's in fact the villain. He says, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. I was like, I think, why, why are all these movies just ripping off a incredibly memorable line from, you know, a movie made in 1995? Turns out that line is from 1864 and it was by some... Some chump named Charles Baudelaire who said Satan's greatest trick was convincing man he didn't exist. Christopher Macquarie's just out here ripping off, you know, old-timey shit. Wow. Okay. I feel like th these conspiracy theories gave, much like the 1945 uh, Thomas, uh, Gospel of Thomas that was discovered, could be their own film in themselves. Dude, I'm, I'm ready and willing to get possessed. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm willing to get in, getting possessed by the spirit of someone who makes an effort. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, it feels good. All right, let's tie a bow on these reviews. All right. So I think we'd agree that it's a coincidence that both these movies happen at the same time, although, as you've just explored, maybe not a coincidence that they share the same quotes as other movies and the same music stems. Which film has aged better, though? Uh, Stigmata. Agreed. Uh, it's, it's, it's aesthetic hasn't aged particularly well, but the whole Y2K aspect of end of days just just dates it 
and weirdly dates it much more than, you know, people like to go, her, 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 judgment day has been and gone, but it didn't happen. But I don't know, it's any Y2K shit, you know, it's just. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Could the filmmakers have done anything better with the high concept behind either film? Well, if you sold me on a movie where Arnie fights Satan, I think everyone's imaginations of that would probably trump the actual execution because you can't actually live up to the to that to to the promise of that premise. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a huge problem when you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's known for carrying guns, trying to shoot at Satan. It's ludicrous. There is a scene towards the end of the film where he looks at his gun and realises that, you know what, it's not going to be very effective. But I would have liked to have seen something more like Van Helsing where he was perhaps sort of like firing, you know, bullets dipped in like holy water or something like that, some sort of like spin on the commando version of Arnie. Oh, totally. So to me that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, like carve crucifixes into the front of your um, rounds, you know. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, Trivia. Let's jump into some of the behind the scenes here. So, Stigmata, I mentioned before the Gospel of Thomas. So, the background there is that some believe it to be the actual words of Jesus to his disciples uh, and was written in Coptic, an ancient Egyptian language based on the Greek alphabet, not Aramaic, as the movie states. But that's the background to that. Uh, another little fact for you is that Patricia Arquette's character is named Frankie which is short for Francis, which is similar to the name of the St. Francis, who we're told by Gabriel Byrne's character was the first saint or person to receive the stigmata. And I presume that's the statue maybe at the end that they sort of have her sort of iconographically resemble in that sort of last shot of the movie, right? Exactly, exactly. In fact, speaking of St. Francis, the producers and the director, Rupert Rainwright, originally were thinking of calling the film St. Francis of Pittsburgh. No. Seriously. St. Francis of Pittsburgh. God, that sounds so low rent. Oh, totally, totally. Um, jumping to end of days, the only interesting bit of trivia behind that one is that there's that gap of two years on IMDb between Batman and Robin featuring Arnie and End of Days. And that was because he actually had heart issues and he couldn't get insured to be in any movies in that two-year gap, which I'd completely forgotten about. Oh, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Huh. Now let's jump to casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Let's stick with End of Days. You're going to love this one. Guess who was offered the chance to direct this film but turned it down? I'll give you a clue. Blade 2. Oh, Guillermo. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I would have I would have watched that. Another one. Uh, Liv Tyler was offered the role of Christine but backed out of contractual issues. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Would she have been a better or worse Christine? I think she's very similar in terms of acting performance to Patricia Arquette. No, Robin Tunney. Oh, of course. Different. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so very different. I guess they're both innocents in a way, aren't they? Softly spoken, vulnerable. I guess so. Um, I do want to say, controversial point to make here, I find Liv Tyler and Patricia Arquette to be terrible actors. And I think Patricia Arquette is terrible in True Romance and she's terrible. Get the fuck out of here. And she's terrible in Stigmata as well. No way. Yep. I'll put it out there. Well, take it back. (laughs) What I won't take back is apparently the role of Jericho Kane was originally written for Tom Cruise. What? But he instead chose to work on Magnolia. The only interesting choice was uh, Peter Himes, the director, was actually recommended to direct the film by James Cameron, which surprised me. Yeah, right. Yeah. Jumping back to Stigmata, 
I couldn't really find any interesting news as to alternative actors. It looks like they got everyone they wanted. Uh, so no news there. All right. Okay. <laughs> Spot the Aussie. Okay, come on, this should be easy. Let's start with Stigmata. Well, I mean, what's her namey? Portia de Rossi. She's an Aussie, right? Exactly. Yeah, totally. I couldn't find anyone at the end of days, could you? No, no. I mean, maybe the one of the grips or something was Australian, but <laughs> no one in the cast jumped out. Miriam Margolis lives in Australia now, so does that count? Uh, yeah, we've kind of adopted her as an Australian, haven't we? I guess so. Yeah, okay. Let's jump to the box office. Okay, which movie was the box office champ, starting with Stigmata? Have a guess. I feel End of Days did more money than Stigmata, but End of Days, probably based on its budget, was considered something of a disappointment. Am I right? Gabe, you are correct and correct. There you go. Stigmata cost $29 million to make. It seems like a lot looking at that film on screen, but this was back in the day where it was shot on film and a lot more money was probably spent on locations and so on. $29 million to make. It made 50 domestically in the States, plus another 39.5 internationally for a worldwide total of 89.5. So it tripled its budget. It would have basically been into profitability on DVD and TV resales, I'd say. End of Days didn't do so well. That film cost $100 million US. It only made $67 million domestically in the States, plus $145, probably based on Arnie's name internationally, for an international worldwide total of $212 million. So, yeah, not a great payback on a budget of $100 million. And I've got to say... I can't really see where that money went. I mean, I guess shooting on location, some big sets, the CGI monster, but that seems like a lot of money to invest in the first place in a Satan-orientated action horror film. Yeah, totally. I mean, I suppose there's some big explosions and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, at a stretch. Okay, let's jump to Rotten Tomato scores. So which one do you think won over the critics? I have a strong feeling that neither of these films won over the critics. And you are right again. Stigmata, 22% on the oh, tomato meter. That's cruel. End of days, 11%. I think that's the lowest rated film we've reviewed so far. Wow. That must be one of Arnie's lowest rated. I mean, look, I'm sure Arnie's filmography is a mixed bag when it comes to the reviews, but, but wow, that's much lower than I would have expected. Yeah, I agree. Um, as for audiences, Stigmata scored 63%, which is higher than I expected, and End of Days was despised with 32%. <laughs> despised. Despised. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the awards. Okay, so starting with best title. For me, it's Stigmata. It is what it is. It has that sound to it. Any of those titles that have those sharp Letters like, you know, uh, a K sound or a a sharpness to the title, particularly in a film which is edgy like this, works for me. Stigmata does that. But How about you? But End of Days isn't a bad title. Uh, end of Days just sounds a bit generic, like some sort of, you mentioned before, um, what's his face with a bad ponytail? Steven Seagal. It sounds like a bad Steven Seagal movie. Gets out of prison, has to redeem himself, the end of days. Yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> All right, uh, so I'm giving it to Stigmata. You? Sure, give it, give it to Stigmata. Best poster. Now, again, a real quick reminder to our podcast listeners, 
the artwork you can see on your iPhone or Android if you are using one of those podcast apps that allows that. You'll see both posters side by side. If you don't have them in front of you, Stigmata's got a poster of essentially, I think it's actually a woman. No, is it a woman? I can't quite see. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a Oh, yeah, it's a woman. She looks semi-naked, but she's wearing like, I guess, sort of like white thin clothes in the crucifix position uh, within the face of another woman behind her uh, with a very much a red hue to the poster. It looks what you'd expect for a horror thriller, whereas End of Days has some terrible posters. Like, I would say the worst posters that we've actually seen so far on this podcast. Really? Yep, terrible. It's basically Arnold Schwarzenegger with this sort of like white-red writing that looks, I guess, electrified, and this mishmash of red clouds and demonic iconography. To me, it's a it's a very muddy, messy, totally uninspiring poster. And I would have thought when you're dealing with the devil and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you could do a lot better than these posters. So for me, I'm giving it in a slam dunk to Stigmata. Mm. Which way are you leaning? Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's a very dull-looking poster for, for end of days. Okay, give it to Stigmata, sure. You could easily have had just a picture of, like, uh, Gabriel Byrne with glowing eyes or... <laughs> Maybe in the background, that demon head with Arnold Schwarzenegger in the foreground running down a street or, or something like that. It looks very static for a film, which is about Arnie shooting at Satan. Yeah. Look, neither of these are great posters. I agree. Better better of two uh, evils. So Stigmata wins it for two in a row. Okay, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award. Uh, just like Billy Bob and Ben Affleck, who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time by starring in these twin movies, starting with Stigmata. I had two contenders here. The director, Rupert Wainwright, who'd done a film written by the screenwriting uh, teacher, Blake Snyder, called Blank Check, pretty average family film, and lots of music videos. This was his big sort of Hollywood break. And then I had Portia de Rossi, who has a small appearance as well. How about you? Any contenders at all? I think those are good um, good nominees. I mean, arguably, I know, I guess The Man in the Iron Mask was Gabriel Byrne's first really big budget movie after sort of really popping out with The Usual Suspects. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess also you could say End of Day's nominee would have to be the writer, Andrew W. Marlowe. Uh, but he'd already done Air Force One before this. so Totally, totally. What do you think? I'm thinking of giving it to the director, Rupert Wainwright. What do you think? Yeah, give it to, give it to Rupes. Done. Well done, Rupes. The award will be available if you collect or have sent to you by DHL sometime after this pandemic. Next, the Before You Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them. So Stigmata, I've got again Portia de Rossi down as well. Very small role, probably one of her first, I would say, speaking roles, having migrated from Australia to the US for a big break. And end of days, I've got Mark Margolis, who plays the Pope, who you may recognise as the guy in the wheelchair who consistently flicks a bell to try and communicate from Breaking Bad. Uh, you may remember him much more as playing Ace Ventura's neighbour in Ace Ventura. <laughs> um, but he's great whenever he turns up in movies. How good is this dude? His voice, awesome. He's great. He's great. Um, uh, which one, I guess, who's more famous? 
Probably Porsche to Rossi. Yeah, sure. All right, Porsche gets it for Stigmata. Okay, moving on. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? So Stigmata, I had Jonathan Price playing the Cardinal and end of days I had Kevin Pollock playing a character called Chicago. Weird name. Miriam Margolis or Udo Kier for me. I love it whenever those guys turn Well, actually, I don't really love it when Miriam Margolis turns up because I can only remember her from one other movie. But Udo, man, Udo, he's the best. I've got Udo for an award later on. Um, Uh, I don't think he did enough in that role to raise it, whereas I thought Kevin Pollack wasn't really much on paper but had a bit of chemistry and attitude to it. So I'm putting down Kevin. You're putting down Udo. Is that right? I mean- I guess. I feel like maybe Enrico Colantoni can get nominated for something later, but I like that he um, he plays Jonathan Price's offsider in Stigmata. I like that he decided to go with an accent. <laughs> it's a choice. <laughs> yeah, a big choice. All right. Yeah. Uh, mm. All right, I'll give you this one to hand away. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> the, Mickey <laughs> Rourke, the Mickey Rourke Award. <laughs> Uh, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? I'm going to give it to Rupert again, the director of Stigmata. Oh, yep. Let's just quickly segue to his IMDb filmography. He does Stigmata in 99. Okay. I would have thought a film that would not have put him in director's jail and given him a reasonable opportunity to kick on. Fair enough? Fair. He does a uh, couple of music videos after this, a TV series called Wolf Lake. He does the unaired pilot, so it didn't kick on. He does a film called The Fog in 2005, which was a remake. Didn't do well. And then basically nothing. He's done an episode of TV called Fear Itself in 2009, short films, which are probably more like long commercials. And now he's in a film in pre-production called Not Without Hope uh, with no one attached to it. Essentially, it appears he's basically just stuck with music videos and commercials, which is really surprising. Yeah, I mean, he, looking at his website, he seems to be doing some relatively big ads for, I don't know, the Olympics or something and FIFA, World Cup. I don't know. Of, no, FINA, whatever. The, I don't know. Look, maybe he's just one of those dudes who did a couple of movies and went, fuck it, I can make a shit ton more money doing four, four TV commercials a year. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, so I'm going to give it to him. End of days, I had also director Peter Himes as well. But maybe looking at Peter Himes's filmography, I mean, after this he did what? This was in 1999, The Musketeer in 2001, a Sound of Thunder, that was a huge turd oh, in have 2005. You seen that? I tried to see it, but it's uh, I can't find it anywhere. It doesn't exist. It. I've Is seen it. it. I saw it on Foxtel. Oh, I, look, I, I have a real soft spot for Peter Hyams. I like his oh, quite a lot of his movies, and um, but oh god, like it is it is atrocious, atrocious. End of days obviously marked the biggest budget he had, but then also the sort of cliff that he fell off. Um, although Enemies Closer, the sort of DTV Van Damme movie he did in 2013, is not bad. I read about uh, A Sound of Thunder in Ed Burns's biography, autobiography, and he does not speak fondly about that experience. Like that it, is one of those films that just seems to vanish. It's amazing how sort of terrible it is, like amazingly bad. 
In that case, I think we should give this to both directors, Rupert and Peter. They're both deserving of the Mickey Rourke Award. Fair. They can share it. They can split it in half. Give it to them. All right. Moving on. The Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? So I'm giving it to Gabriel Byrne in both movies. I think basically he was the best thing about both films. It wasn't his career high, but he actually was nominated for Razzie Awards for both these movies. I actually thought he was pretty good. Fucking Razzies. Yeah, he's he's pretty committed. You know, I guess Gabriel Byrne's interesting because he he rose to prominence. Like a, I don't know, kind of you know, as a later age actor. So he really only had a window of a couple of years of maximum sexiness. And I'd say, you know, he's, he's capitalising on that here. Once again, Gabe just reminds us all how sexy Gabriel Byrne is in both these movies. Uh, you know, I feel that's what my job today is to do. Well, job done. Nice. Best Dialogue Award. What's your favourite quote, starting with Stigmata? Oh, hold on, i got to... I actually have a nominee here that I quite like. It's quite funny. It's at the start of the film where Frankie, played by Patricia Arquette, is speaking to her psychiatrist or psychologist. Actually, maybe she's in hospital, actually. It's after she's found with the wounds and the doctor's probing whether she may have committed them herself as self-harm if she's suicidal. And Dr. Resson says, are there any problems with her significant other? And Frankie says, yes. And she says, which is? And Frankie replies, I'm not very significant. I like that line. For some reason, it just works for me. And the same doctor says, do you have any stress at work? And Frankie says, I cut hair. Uh, I don't know. For some reason, it just was like short, sharp, to the point. But none of these lines are like quips that people repeat, you know, after seeing these movies. No, no. And I, I had one line that it's not so much a good line as a line that made me go, huh, that's a bit weird. At one point in End of Days, um, Satan calls Arnie a choir boy compared to him. And it's like, wait, What? I know Arnie's character is drinking, like, dirty-ass milkshakes, but if you're a choir boy compared to Satan, what the fuck else is Arnie out there doing? <laughs> like, it's one of those people, what? Is he, is, he, is he out there just doing a sex crime? Like, what the fuck? I know. It just makes no sense. You, you can't be, like, if he is Satan, isn't he, like, the worst? Yeah. Like, just by uh, definition? Like, is there a prequel movie that might exist to End of Days, which is just, like, Arnie... Character Jericho Kane just committing war crimes, <laughs> you know, just like getting white phosphorus and just inserting them into people or something. I don't know, just like real fucked up shit, like desecrating bodies with this necrophily tendency. I don't know, like how can you be worse than Satan? How can you? How can Satan say to you, bro, you're worse than me? You should be on my team. Stuff. <laughs> why didn't Why didn't Satan possess Arnie's body? These are all fair questions to ask, in which case, for this particular award, who is most deserving? Well, mine wasn't actually about a good line of dialogue, so it was just about a question I had. So <laughs> the, the, the one that you uh, presented is actually a ni- quite nice piece of writing. All right, done. Stigmata gets the award. Okay, moving on. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. You go first. Well, I think Miriam Margolis, as we've discussed, gets to chew a little bit of scenery. She gets quite a good death scene in End of Days. Yeah, she is really chewing it. I I agree. So End of Days, she'd be a nominee. Anyone in Stigmata? Well, I mentioned him before, but Enrico Colantoni does a very Italian accent. Um, 
And, you know, like you said, it's a choice. Um, you choose then. It's your choice. I, I feel there's not many opportunities to give Miriam Margolis an award for a death scene at the hands of Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we'll go with that, I think. Margolis, it's all yours. If I'm in Sydney sometime soon, I'll hand it to you in person. All right, moving on. The Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Was anyone taking a paycheck here? I mean, I guess you'd say Gabriel Byrne was trying to cash in post the usual suspects. Was there anyone else slumming it for some serious coin? No, I think Gabriel Byrne's probably a good one because even after he sort of broke out, you know, big after, you know, the usual suspects, he was still kind of doing indie movies, you know, Dead Man, that Jim Jarmusch movie, which is pretty great, Trigger Happy, which is pretty terrible, um, Smiller's Feeling for Snow. Hey, do you remember that one? Oh, I do. 1997. Yes. Vim Vendor's The End of Violence. So he probably went, great, I've got all this cachet and I'm getting to work with great directors, but fuck yeah, just give me some of that sweet cash. And so for his sins, oh, see what I did there? Nice. Very nice. clever, huh? <laughs> very very right. clever. Let's give it to him. Done. Bernsey, you get the award. Moving on. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the actor who played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Who triggered Hates That Guy in you, Gabe, when he or she appeared on screen? Starting with Stigmata. Uh, ooh, ooh, can I go first? Can I go first? Uh, okay. So I had Raid. Rada. Rada, sorry, who you'd know from Snatch and Taken 2. Or maybe Sean Tuob, who was the guy that helped out Tony Stark in the first Iron Man in the cave. Nice, nice. No vote for Patrick Muldoon, who was in Starship Troopers and got his brain sucked out by the um, big giant brain bug. No? No. No. But you can nominate him. Eh. I guess I was watching a bit of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills lately and he turned up, so why not? Wow. Yeah. There are so many questions about that story. <laughs> hey, look, that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> Uh, two more nominees for me in End of Days. There's Udo Kier, who played the head priest, who you know from Blade. Oh, yeah. He basically always plays baddies because of his Austrian-German accent and his look. And, again, Miriam Margoyles from Harry Potter and Romeo and Juliet. Okay, I've got one from End of Days. That's four nominees. I've got, who else do you uh, have? Okay, Derek O'Connor, who plays Thomas Aquinas in End of Days, who is the priest with no tongue who has managed to speak to Schwarzenegger. He was the villain in Lethal Weapon 2, very memorable villain in Lethal Weapon 2, who turns out had killed Riggs's wife. And he has a uh, cargo container crate dropped on him at the end. Ah, uh, okay. So there's five, no- yeah. there's five nominees. I feel like Rada gets it for my liking. Okay, just give it to Rada, sure. Done. Rada, the, the award is yours. But let's just acknowledge it was very heavily contested and I might say arguably one of the most contested awards of recent times for the Stephen Tobolowsky Award. Well, we could have given it to CCH or CC, however her oh, name no. is pronounced. Sure, she, appears, you know. she appears to me right now under the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. And I feel we've probably actually given her this award before. Have we? I think we have. I just think she is consistently punching above her weight. She's so charismatic. I mentioned before that she's been on over 240 episodes of The Shield and NCIS New Orleans and also Avatar as well. James Cameron movie, I just think she's great. I never think she's acting. I always believe her in the role and she always has so much presence. I always believe that she is the boss or the friend of the person on screen next to her. Yeah. Look, no competition. Let's just let's just give it to her again. Uh, Anytime actually, she turns up. I had one more. I had one more. 
I All can right. I nominate Gabriel Byrne again? You want I do, more I do Gabriel feel, Byrne? I do feel you put Gabriel Byrne in any movie and he makes it better. Do you so think the, so? Yep. I guess as a third nominee up on the uh, the little bricks there, standing beside Gabs and CCH, is Kevin Pollack. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's always been good. Yeah. And never been in as many films as you would have expected. Like, he never really took all these chips from that he, you know, that he earned from all that cachet of the usual suspects and then just like push them into Hollywood to, you know, double down. I sort of feel like he decided to sort of just ease away from the limelight. But I do feel that he's not cast often enough and that might be his own choice. Yeah, I mean, isn't he a famous stand-up comedian and podcaster and maybe he's just sort of, you know, he's a renaissance man. Well, that's, that's our situation, Gabe, with us podcasting. I mean, people have said the same thing, like, are we not cashing in our chips enough? And are we potentially ourselves nominees for the uh, Delroy Lindo Award? And look, that that could be true. Like we are spending a lot of time in this podcast and maybe we aren't focusing enough on getting cast, you know, behind or in front of the camera. Maybe. It's a question. Maybe. It's a question. Okay. Well, are we giving this award to us then? <laughs> um, look, I'm going to give it to Gabriel Byrne Ugh. because even though he was in everything at that time, I don't think I see him in enough movies now. I, I sort of feel there are plenty of roles that Pierce Brosnan gets as another good-looking Irishman that Gabs could be in instead. Gabs, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a level of uh, uh, intimacy you have with him now. That All right. We'll give it to Gabs. Gabs or Gabby. Okay. Okay. Just don't call me either of those fucking names. I should just say as well, I looked up a photograph of Gabriel Byrne in preparation for this podcast and he's done well in that – if you're a male actor and you put on too much weight, you go grey or you most commonly you go bald, you can't maintain that look of the film that you had 20 years prior. That is your iconic role. And so it's very hard to try and trade off that. Whereas if you went, this is one of my theories I've used before, if you go bald early and you accept it and embrace it like Bruce Willis, like Jason Statham, like The Rock, like Vin Diesel – then basically you've got a 20-year runway in your career where you look the same more or less as the look you had in your first big breakout role. Gabriel Byrne looks almost the same as now, even though he's in his 70s, as he did in 1995 when The Ninja Suspects came out 25 years ago. So, Well, he still has his hair, but it just looks like he pounded a bunch of whiskeys between then. Yeah, but he looks at least more or less the same, which I think means oh, yeah. you cast him now and people go, oh, Gabriel Byrne. I think like Pierce Brosnan with that accent, this, that kind of shallow part where you hear their accent and it elevates the film. Same goes with, you know, Mr Hannibal himself, Anthony Hopkins. There's just something about the British accent and the Irish accent where you – it gives their, their character a bit of credibility if you will. Gravitas. 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 Exactly. Sure. All right. Sure. Okay. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Which character, Gabe, steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Ah, we know the answer to this. Who? I mean, it's Jericho Kane, surely. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character from End of Days. I did actually have a real-life contender, which was the writer Rick Rampage. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's – I mean, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Look, it's got to be, I agree, it's got to be Jericho Kane. Um, done. Slam dunk. All right, we're almost at the end here. The Memento Award. Now, 
This is named for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched both these movies. But for me, I'd never seen either of these films until this podcast recording. So this one's on you, Gabe. Which had which moment had you forgotten about until you saw it again this time round, twenty years later? Uh, look, I feel I've mentioned many of them before, so I think we need to re re look into them. But I loved finding the music turning out to be the end of days thing. That was oh god, it, it's haunted my dreams for years, Ben. For years, for years. This would be the ultimate. Memento Award winner, I think. Oh. I, th- I think it's now sitting at a higher bar than ever before. I, All right, I, done. I can finally relax. <laughs> um, the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of uh, clones like Under Siege. Now, let's think about it. Did Stigmata or End of Days inspire a series of religious thrillers or religious action movies? We've talked about films of that time, The Ninth Gate, The Devil's Advocate, Lost Souls. What else? Ah, uh, I mean, neither of the. I mean, you know, The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby. People have been making these movies for, 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 for yonks. And yeah, I mean, neither of these feel like they inspired shit. <laughs> like, yeah, I agree. I agree. These films actually stood on the shoulders of better films before them, like Rosemary's Baby, like The Exorcist. And didn't actually, you know, reinvent the wheel anyway. So, yeah, I say no is the answer to that. So no award nominee, no award winner, which means it brings us to that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway train. I always do that. The high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocate it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, Gabe, imagine this. Let's say there's a big wig Hollywood executive producer at the studio, and they're asking us, can we make a sequel to Stigmato or End of Days? Now, they're both films about an American woman who finds herself in the midst of a possession at the end of the millennium, and only one man can save her. So, which film do we make a sequel of? And what's our pitch to make it go? Well, well, it's tough to make a sequel to End of Days because, one, you've killed off Schwarzenegger, but that's not really a problem. But it's almost like once you've beaten Satan, how do you create a villain who is dangerous or, or sort of frightening enough to top that? Like you can't fight two Satans. Well, Satan's son, it's like, uh, you know, it's like in uh, Austin Powers, right? You've got like uh, Dr. Evil. God, I hate Austin Powers. And then Dr. Evil's son. Yeah, just like that. What an exciting, <laughs> great, fuck. <laughs> well, let's let's start off with the basic principles, right? End of Days made more money than Stigmata. So the accountants there might say, well, that's a smart sequel, except it cost a bucket load of cash to make. So in proportion to its budget, it didn't actually make that much money. Now- End of Days had star Arnold Schwarzenegger, who isn't a star anymore. He dies at the end of the film. That's okay. You could always bring him back to life because of any film where you could make the excuse of bringing back the main character, it's a film about Christ and Satan. So we can get around that if we need to. Stigmata, let me think. Gabriel Byrne, Patricia Arquette, not particularly stars that you need to bring back who have that kind of cachet to bring in an audience. But 
At the same time, you could probably lure them back with a bit of cash because they're not so famous. I'm leaning towards stigmata because the idea of stigmata is that people throughout history have suffered from stigmata. To me, that means it's a natural sequel and doesn't have to compete with this whole idea of doing the next Satan or the next devil. So I'm thinking Stigmata is our film that we can make a mid-budget sequel to and possibly just call it like a DVD, you know, sequel, Stigmata 2, recast it, place it elsewhere and just have someone else suffer, suffer from Stigmata. Oh, totally. You pay Patricia Arquette, you know, $180,000 to come in and do one day work where the main character goes and visits her and she says, oh, yeah, 20 years ago I was stigmated. <laughs> That does sound really gross. Actually, here's an idea. What if we actually don't lean in too hard to Stigmata? Now, bear with me. I know that film was called Stigmata, and so it'd be illogical to lean away from that premise. But one of the best things about Stigmata is that it has a character played by Gabriel Byrne who has this internal conflict with himself and that he is both a priest and a scientist. That's just inherently interesting. And he... At the start of the film is seen roaming the world on a mission sent by the Catholic Church to investigate miracles, to verify them. And I guess what would happen is, in some ways, if he verifies it, that can, I guess, strengthen the face of the, of the Catholic Church. But there might be things he also discovers which the Catholic Church doesn't like and doesn't want exposed. So all those conspiracy theories we see in those films like Angel and Demons and The Da Vinci Code could be explored. So what if we actually just have another character if we can't get Gabriel Byrne to come back for a cool $5 million cash and we have him or her, well, I guess being a priest, it'd have to be a him in the Catholic Church, roaming the world and he discovers something that shakes his belief in Christ or unveils a conspiracy and then the film can be basically trading off all those Christian conspiracy theorists that love those Dan Brown books. Totally. Like uh, maybe our our young priest uh, is sent by old Gabriel Byrne. You know, like what's a great Christian conspiracy thing that's probably bullshit, but might be, like uh, uh, the Russian well to hell, you know, that giant hole they dug in Russia where the people thought, oh, maybe it, they heard like voices at the bottom of it and they thought that actually dug to hell. And he goes there and he thinks it's bullshit, but it's true or you know, rip off Constantine and he actually finds the spear of destiny or whatever. Yeah, I, I love those sorts of movies. I reckon that's a uh, – I'd watch the shit out of that. Okay, so then what's the basic premise going to be? Is it that he discovers a miracle or an event that actually strengthens the belief, the belief that there is a Jesus or a Satan or is it the reverse of that? He discovers something – which undermines it. And so let's say, for example, it's something like the Shroud of Turin, which allegedly is that portrait on material made of Jesus Christ's face, and he discovers that's a fraud and discovers this whole underground series of conspiracies where, which the Catholic Church has built itself on to try and uh, establish the existence of Jesus, but he discovers that there isn't a Jesus Christ. Which way do we go? Which way do we go? Because if he's a scientist as well, you kind of want to have the tension, right? So if he's always basically going around the world and discovering these miracles aren't miracles because the science part of him discovers that it's a fraud, then essentially he wants to discover the truth as a scientist, but 
at the same time, he also wants to believe. Yeah, so... Which way do you go as a character? So I suppose an audience would probably prefer that. No one wants to see a movie about a guy who at the end realises that everything he believed in religiously was bullshit. Like, while I might think, oh, that's kind of funny premise, it's probably off-putting. Whereas a guy who spent his life debunking, you know, uh, religious mysteries finally finds the one that both confirms confirms his faith but unleashes upon the world some sort of terrible, uh, terrible curse or what have you that only he can then stop using the combined powers of science and religion. So... Wouldn't it be great if he actually finds a miracle, an event, that he scientifically proves is true? So for once, I guess, both worlds have come together, science and faith. The science proves an event, which then strengthens his belief in God. But what if he then can't reveal it, has to bury it, because that truth would be so overwhelming and destructive, it would tear the fabric of society apart? Oh, I like it. So think about this old screenplay written about 25 years ago, which is infamous in Hollywood. And it's about, it's by, I think, a screenwriter called Warren Singer and someone else. And it's about these two priests that go on a mission to do something like this. And then they discover something that proves that God doesn't exist. And then as a result, they basically abandon everything that they've always done and they drink and they kill and they have sex because there isn't a consequence. And in the film, I think someone's trying to hunt down that crucial piece of evidence that they're carrying on them, which proves that God doesn't exist. Alice is kind of the inverse of that, right? Yeah. He has the proof that God exists, but he can't let it out, because if he did, how would it tear the fabric of society apart, do you think? I don't know. I mean, anything that causes the... uh the basic level teachings of a huge religion like Christianity that would make everyone rethink it from uh, the very fundamentals would probably have sort of wide-ranging, you know, uh, repercussions. Like if it turned out that Jesus was an alien. Oh, okay. So basically. No, I'm not saying it should be that. No. <laughs> That's a stupid one. But No, maybe. this is good. Basically, Zack Snyder used religious iconography in his adaptation of Superman in Man of Steel, right? And he said... If Superman landed on this earth, we think of him as a superhero, but he's an alien, and people would see him as potentially a Jesus-like figure, a messiah, right? He can do miracles, he can turn back time, he can save people, he's a Jesus-like figure. And the iconography of Jesus Christ is just littered throughout that entire film. What if, you're right, what if it turns out and this taps back into another film that we talk about, which is Prometheus by Ridley Scott. What if it turned out that the evidence they find is that Jesus was an alien? And so why that upsets the Catholic Church in the movie is because that would basically just totally undermine their entire structure, much like in Stigmata where they discover the Gospel of St. Thomas, which might undermine the Catholic Church there. The same thing happens here. So you prove the existence of God, but unfortunately for the Catholic Church, God is an alien. I like it. And therefore, the entire church structure is irrelevant. What do you think? I like it. It's It's got religion and science. It's got, a, it's got angels and aliens. And, you know, if we can get in there some sort of weird alien impregnation or something, 
Why not? So if he discovers that Jesus was an alien, do we have the second coming where at the end of the film an alien ship lands and another alien appears like the second coming? Or perhaps somehow the new character who's the protege of Gabriel Byrne from the first movie, this young priest, discovers an alien spaceship like buried in the ice like Superman's film and has an opportunity to go back to the alien world as as our messenger. What do you think? Emissary. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think you really you really had me on uh, a, a, a Jesuit scientist investigates um, some Christ mythology and discovers that Jesus was an alien. You know, uh, whether he has to fight alien Jesus at some point, go to alien Jesus's planet, uh, prostrate himself before alien Jesus. I'm, I'm not really fussed. I think, you know, it could go any number of ways and I'm there for a lot of them. Well, that's at least one audience member we have on board. So let's bring this home. What at the very end of this film, it transpires that our character discovers that Jesus was an alien. He discovers evidence of this somehow, for example, like in a spaceship, like in Predator 2, for example. He discovers a spaceship which demonstrates that these aliens have been to various worlds and been seen as godlike characters. And at the very end of the film, he decides that he cannot reveal that Jesus was an alien because if he does... Not only would it tear up the Catholic Church, it would tear up other religious groups around the world. And it's better to keep the basic structure in place now, where even though there's a lot of sort of religious fighting, at least it's more stable. It's better the devil you know, excuse the pun. And so he basically literally and metaphorically closes the spaceship door and walks away and writes up his report, essentially writing that what he discovered was actually a hoax and life continues on to his next mission. I like it. And that secret lives with him forever and ever. I like it. I feel this doesn't even need to be a sequel to either of these two movies and maybe we should drop the connection and just make it its own thing about, you know, alien angels and and freaky extraterrestrial Jesus. So let's bring this home with a title that is captivating, that can stand alone. It can or doesn't have to be a sequel to Stigmata. What are we going to pitch this idea as to this Hollywood executive? Give me a title that just cuts through. We've got Angels and Demons by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, Stigmata with Gabriel Byrne. What's our film called? Okay, here it is, Ben. It is Better the Devil UFO. (laughs) Oh, done. Uh, Done. All right. And that's how you make a film about science and religion. Boom. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? On Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ben Phelps. Also on Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this podcast and my other podcasts in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, please share it with your mates and leave a review on Apple iTunes. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. Adios, Gabe. Ben, let it be known, sons and daughters, that Satan was an acid head. Drink from his cup. Pledge yourselves. Together, we'll freak out. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Bye.